0: Good evening. I'm very pleased to see so many of you out tonight to hear our evening's lecture. We are going to be hearing from Professor Deepak Nayar this evening. He is Emeritus Professor of Economics at Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi, and an Honorary Fellow of Balliol College in Oxford. He's taught and researched international economics, macroeconomics, and development economics for decades. He was Distinguished University Professor of Economics at the New School for Social Research in New York. Earlier, he taught at the University of Oxford, the University of Sussex, and the Indian Institute of Management in Calcutta. He served as Vice Chancellor of the University of Delhi. He was also Chairman of the Board of the World Institute for Development Economics Research wider in Helsinki and on the Board of Directors of the Social Science Research Council in the United States. His professional life in academia has been interspersed with time in the world of public policy as Chief Economic Advisor to the Government of India and, Perf- and Permanent Secretary in the Ministry of Finance. He studied at Balliol College, <coughs> University of Oxford, where he obtained a B-fill and a D-fill in economics. Professor Nayar's latest books, Resurgent Asia, Diversity and Development, and Asian Transformations An Inquiry into the Development of Nations, have been published by Oxford University Press in late 2019. Those are also the themes of his talk for us this evening. We welcome you to it. He'll be talking for about 40 minutes, and then there will be time for your questions also. Um, Our communications officer has asked to remind you that if you want to, you can tweet about this event using the LSE ID um, uh, name here, Um, but we certainly welcome your participation this evening and also invite you to the reception that will be following this talk. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Professor Deepak Nayar to talk about economic development in Asia. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Chair, for your words of welcome. Um, I'm going to talk about economic development in Asia during the past half century. Now. The book that Cathy mentioned, Resurgent Asia, analyzes the phenomenal transformation of Asia, which would have been difficult to imagine, let alone predict 50 years ago. In doing so, it provides an analytical narrative of this remarkable story of economic development situated in its wider context of historical, political, and social factors, and an economic analysis of the underlying factors with a focus on critical issues in the process of and outcomes in development. Given the size and the diversity of the Asian continent, uh, the aggregate level is obviously not appropriate or always appropriate. Thus, the study disaggregates Asia, excluding Japan, which I think of as uh, the last of the early industrializers rather than the first of the late industrializers into its four constituent subregions East, Southeast, South, and West Asia, and further into 14 selected countries that I describe in the book as the Asian 14. China, India, South Korea, Indonesia, Turkey, Taiwan, Thailand, Philippines, Malaysia, Singapore, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Vietnam, and Sri Lanka. Um, I list these countries in descending order of GDP in market exchange rates. Uh, Together they accounted for more than four-fifths of the population and income of Asia. Uh, At the outset, it is necessary to recognize uh, the diversity of Asia. There were marked differences uh, between countries in geographical size, embedded histories, colonial legacies, nationalist movements, initial conditions, natural resource endowments, population size, income levels, and political systems. Uh, The reliance on markets and the degree of openness in economies varied greatly uh, across space and over time. Uh, The politics, too, ranged widely from socialism to state capitalism to capitalism, from authoritarian regimes through oligarchies to political democracies, from one-party states to multi-party systems. Uh, Outcomes in development which differed uh, not only between countries at any point in time, uh, but also within countries over time were incredibly diverse. Uh, There were different parts to development. Uh, because there were no universal solutions, silver bullets, or magic wands. Hence, there were choices to be made uh, which were shaped by a complex mix of economic, social, and political factors in the national context where history mattered. Yet, despite such diversity, there are discernible patterns pointing to substantive analytical lessons that emerge from the Asian development experience. In this slide, you have the cover of the book and a roadmap, as it were, uh, of what it sets out to do. Now, given the time constraint, I can only outline, at best, the broad contours of the analysis to focus on important findings, conclusions. Uh, I hope that this would serve as a teaser to stimulate thinking on an exciting, yet relatively unexplored subject and tempt you. To read the book. Okay? Um, let me begin with the historical uh, historical perspective and initial conditions. Now, in 1820, two centuries ago, Asia accounted for two-thirds of world population and almost three-fifths of world income. Where just two countries, China and India, accounted for one-half of world population and world income. The colonial era witnessed a precipitous decline in this economic significance, which I describe as the decline and fall of of Asia. Um, By 1962, uh, you would see the share of Asia in world population had diminished to 50%, while its share in world income had plummeted to 15%. Uh, For China and India, taken together, they are not in this figure, um, these shares plunged to 35% of population and barely 8% of income. The outcome was what has been described as the great divergence. Income per capita in Asia as a proportion of that in the West, mm, Western Europe, North America and Australia New Zealand, that Madison describes as Western offshoots, Um, as a proportion of that in the West dropped from one-half in 1820 uh, to less than one-tenth in 1962. This was associated with what I describe as the great specialization, uh, which meant that Western Europe produced manufactured goods, while Asia produced primary commodities. Consequently, the share of China and India together in world manufacturing production Collapsed from about 50% in 1820 to just 5% in 1962. Um, the decline and fall of Asia was attributable to its integration with the world economy through trade and investment, shaped by colonialism and driven by imperialism. The industrialization of Western Europe and the deindustrialization of Asia were, in fact, two sides of the same coin, which had a devastating impact. China in India and for those interested I've studied this at some length in a earlier book called catch-up also published by Oxford University Press now it is no surprise that circa 1970 around 50 years ago in terms of income levels Asia was the poorest continent in the world is demographic and so poorer than Africa its demographic and social indicators of development among the worst anywhere, epitomized its underdevelopment. Such initial conditions inherited from the past were the starting point in its journey to development. Even so, unlike Latin America and Africa, most Asian countries did have a long history of well-structured states and cultures uh, which were not entirely destroyed by colonialism. Consequently, in the early post-colonial era, governments came into being uh, relatively uh, smoothly. And now, uh, in the pursuit of development, the reshaping of initial conditions was... I'm sorry, I always... I'm no good with PowerPoints. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Governments did two things. They invested in developing a physical infrastructure and they invested in spreading education in society, followed slowly by the public provision of healthcare. Uh, apart from that, uh, they sought to facilitate institutional change, say land reform or developing banking systems or creating financial institutions uh, that were seen to be conducive to development. Now, in each of these domains, a a, a critical minimum was necessary to kickstart the process of development. Uh, Let me now turn to the rise of Asia. Now, the transformation of Asia over the past 50 years uh, reflected in its demographic transition, social progress, and economic development has been phenomenal indeed. Its share of world GDP, for instance, rose from less than one-tenth in 1970 to more than three-tenths in 2016. Uh, While its income per capita, the right-hand panel, uh, surpassed that of developing countries, uh, converged towards the world average income level, although convergence was at best modest compared with industrialized countries, you can see that, because the initial income gap was so enormous. Uh, Growth in GDP and GDP per capita in Asia was much higher than in the world economy, industrialized countries, developing countries for which which it drove up the growth rates, and of course Latin America uh, and Africa. And that comes through uh, strikingly uh, in this graph. Um, Over this period, the share of Asia in world industrial production, manufacturing value added, Uh, jumped, and in world manufactured exports, jumped from a minuscule 4% in 1970 to more than 40% by 2016. Uh, Its share of world merchandise trade rose from about, from less than 10% uh, to about 35%. Uh, Its engagement with the world economy through international investment as a destination and a source also witnessed similar change. Now, This provides a sharp contrast uh, with the decline and fall of Asia uh, during 1920, 1960 in the colonial era. Now, for Asian countries, I argue, uh, political independence, which restored their economic autonomy and enabled them to pursue national development objectives, made this possible. It was, in fact, a turning point. However, economic and social development was most unequal between the constituent subregions of Asia. East Asia was the leader, and South Asia was the laggard uh, with Southeast Asia in the middle, uh, while progress in West Asia did not match its initial high income levels in many ways, West Asia was much like Latin America hmm? it has stayed roughly where it was fifty years ago. Uh, economic growth in asia was faster than elsewhere in the world not only in east asia but also believe it or not in south asia and in southeast asia through much of this period yet east asia contributed (coughs) about two-thirds of the increase in asia's share of world gdp uh, while southeast asia south asia and west asia taken together contributed the remaining one-third, industrialization was even more concentrated in East Asia, uh, which accounted for three-fourths of the increase in Asia's share of world manufacturing value added, Uh, and it was East Asia that also witnessed a significant convergence in incomes per capita. Uh, Economic growth in over 50 years in most of the Asian 14 has been stunning. Hmm. China was the star performer throughout. Uh, Growth rates of both GDP and GDP per capita were high in South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Thailand during the period 1970 to 1990, but slowed down significantly in the quarter century from 1990. Uh, Whereas, these growth rates were significantly lower in India, Vietnam, and Bangladesh during the first two decades, but were significantly higher in the last 25 years. In comparison, (coughs) the growth performance of Sri Lanka was respectable, uh, driven down, of course, by ethnic conflict and civil war, um, while that of Turkey was average, but that of Philippines and Pakistan was poor. Although in 1970, uh, uh, Harvard, which was among the universities to look at development systematically, described both Philippines and, and Pakistan as poster children that were meant to be the success stories. Uh, the slowdown in growth since 1990 that has been experienced by South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Thailand, I think is attributable the long-term effects of the Asian financial crisis because neither investment nor savings ever recovered. Uh, In countries where growth was was impressive, investment rates and investment and savings rose rapidly, driving growth on the supply side. Of course, uh, investment also drove growth from the demand side. I will explain in a moment. Um, Thus, trends in investment rates and savings rates mirror differences in growth performance across countries Um, over time. Education, which contributed to human capital formation and healthcare, was a sustained driver of growth in countries that were success stories. Uh, An analysis of long-term changes in uh, the composition of aggregate demand um, showed that from the demand side, Growth was primarily private-consumption expenditure-led and Uh, investment-led. The contribution of net exports uh, as a demand stimulus to growth was in general small or negative, with the exception of Singapore and Taiwan for short periods. But that should not need one to underestimate the importance of the external sector in Asian development. And it is the interaction between the supply side and the demand side in the Asian 14, uh, which suggests that there was a strong nexus between investment and exports at a macro level, which could drive economic growth, creating a virtuous circle of cumulative causation. Investment created a domestic market on the demand side and transformed the industrial structure on the supply side, uh, whereas export provided an external market on the demand side and a cost discipline on the supply side. Uh, Thus, where rapid investment growth coincided in time with rapid export growth, it led to rapid GDP growth. Uh, This was so in China throughout, in South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Thailand during 1970, 1990, and in India, Vietnam, and Bangladesh during 1990, 2016. But this did not happen in countries uh, where rapid investment growth and rapid export growth did not coincide or where growth in both was slow. Now, I do want to emphasize that contrary to conventional wisdom in orthodox economics, most of the Asian 14 did not follow orthodox prescriptions of balanced budgets and price stability in macroeconomic management. In fact, they were heterodox both in their objectives and policies. Their primary macroeconomic objective was economic growth and in some employment creation. Their macroeconomic policies were also much broader, more versatile in their use of policy instruments. For example, public investment or tax concessions in the fiscal sphere and interest rates in the monetary sphere were used to stimulate private investment. Their success in maintaining high growth rates increased their degrees of freedom. Uh, which enabled them to finance government deficits and raise sustainable levels of government borrowing uh, while making higher inflation rates politically more acceptable. None of which would have been possible if economic growth had been slow. Okay? Now, let me turn briefly to, st- to structural change. Development in, in Asia, as elsewhere, has been associated with a structural transformation of economies over oh, five decades. In this process, economic growth drove structural change from the demand side as incomes rose and production activities follow. Huh? Uh, Alan Fisher, Colin Clark. Uh, while structural change drove economic growth from the supply side as labor moved from low productivity to high productivity occupations, huh? uh, as was suggested by Schumpeter, Kuznets, January. Kay. Now, there were significant differences between the Asian 14 in their paths to structural transformation. South Korea, Taiwan, and Singapore, followed by China, and to some extent Malaysia, uh, conformed to the classical pattern of structural change from agriculture to industry to services. Uh, India, Turkey, Thailand, Philippines, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka, followed by Bangladesh and Vietnam, later did not conform to this traditional sequence the transition from a situation circa 1970 uh, where The agricultural sector was dominant to a situation in 2016 where the services sector was dominant Was far from uniform in these 14 countries yet. There was an exit of labor from agriculture everywhere Uh, in some countries to manufacturing in other countries to construction in yet other countries to mining, all of which make up industry, uh, and in yet other countries to services. And these three sorts of labor transfers overlapped with each other in time and space. In the earlier stages of development, uh, such labor transfer between sectors was growth-promoting. In the later stages of development, productivity increase within sectors was growth-promoting. So that was common. The relative importance of these two drivers differed across countries as well as sectors and changed over time. But the services sector progressively became the largest employer with the highest output share and the highest employment share across the Asian 14, indeed, across Asia. Now, it is clear (laughs) to me, that apart from South Korea, Taiwan, and Singapore, possibly Malaysia, the process of structural transformation in the Asian 14 is uneven and incomplete because the share of agriculture exceeds its, in in, in employment, far exceeds its share in output. In India, by more than 40%, in China, by by more than 25%, uh, whereas, uh, you know, Productivity levels and real wages in the agricultural sector continue to be much lower than in the non-agricultural sector. Uh, The services sector has led growth in many countries, but it doesn't have the same attributes as manufacturing to sustain that growth because it's not easy to move labor from, say, the informal retail or wholesale sector uh, into financial, technological, or business services in manufacturing Uh, that mobility exists. Now, I think it is necessary in Asia to to, uh, address the neglect of agriculture and to renew the emphasis on manufacturing, just as it is essential to exploit the synergies and complementarities between manufacturing and services. Uh, I do believe, if you go back to Caldor's three laws, that... The modern services sector has many of the attributes of manufacturing in terms of driving productivity, industrialization and development. The, The lesson is clear. Economic growth cannot be sustained and structural transformation cannot be completed even if one of the three sectors is a weak link in the chain. It turns out to be the Achilles heel. Now, let me turn now to the two issues that have been the focus of the debate on economic development in Asia. Uh, The degree and nature of openness of economies and uh, the the possible role of the state, of of governments. Uh, Economic openness has performed a critical supportive role in the process wherever it has been in the form of strategic integration with rather than a passive insertion into the world economy. However, analysis of the industrialization experience in the Asian 14 uh, shows that openness, while necessary, was not sufficient. It was conducive to industrialization only when it was combined with industrial policy. Uh, let me cite just a few examples. Trade policy was characterized by an asymmetry, as it was open for the export sector but restrictive for other sectors. Exchange rates were undervalued for long periods of time uh, to allow an entry into the world market for manufactured goods. Um, Regimes for foreign direct investment or foreign technology were calibrated to facilitate industrialization, often through strategic bargaining with large international firms. The allocation of private investment to selected sectors were influenced by the strategic use of differential interest rates, as in Korea, or tax concessions, as in Taiwan, um, industrial finance was provided to development banks. Most important, perhaps, there was a coordination of such economic policies across sectors over time. They worked in tandem. Now, the pioneering success stories, South Korea, Taiwan, and Singapore, are classic examples of the use of industrial policy uh, through government intervention to realize scale economies, foster industrial diversification, encourage technological upgrading, develop global brands. Okay? Uh, the more recent success story, China has used industrial policy in a very different context of learning to industrialize and then building domestic capabilities in the pursuit of long-term objectives. And interestingly enough, China is much more like Singapore than it is like Korea uh, and, and, and Taiwan. The industrial dynamism of Indonesia, Malaysia, and Thailand has waned after the Asian financial crisis, Um, middle-income trap perhaps, Uh, but more, which could have sustained if industrial policy had been more purposive and more effective because they have just witnessed a passive insertion into global value chains. Uh, India, the most industrialized to start with in 1970, Uh, Its share of World Manufacturing Alley was roughly twice that of China Uh, and it is now probably one-eighth that of China. Um, lagged behind the leaders, because industrial policy was poorly implemented or was simply not used, but its success in pharmaceuticals, automobiles and information technology is attributable to industrial policy. Similarly, Bangladesh, too, used industrial policy to drive its garment export led industrialization. Clearly, success at industrialization in Asia was driven by sensible industrial policy that was implemented by effective governments. In future, however, uh, I should add the rider that technological learning and technological capabilities are essential to provide the foundations for sustaining industrialization. And we see evidence of that essentially in South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, and now in China. Hmm? India somewhat behind in this. Uh, Let me turn to the other issue. Uh, And most of you would be aware that there is a deep divide in the literature, Uh, you know, polar opposites in ideological perspectives, uh, that both those who believe in the magical markets or the critical role of government invoke the Asian development experience to validate their hypothesis. Uh, yet uh, reality does not conform to to either ideological perspective Uh, in in, in totality. Uh, Governments performed a critical role ranging from leader to catalyst or supporter in the economic transformation of Asia spanning half a century. While their willingness and ability to do so depended on the nature of the state, which in turn was shaped by politics. The state and the market are complements rather than substitutes, and the two institutions must adapt to each other in a cooperative manner over time. Success in development, at development in Asia was about managing this evolving relationship uh, between states and markets by finding the right balance in their respective roles, which also had to change over time. Countries where governments did not or could not perform this role and were unable to evolve their role vis-a-vis markets lagged behind in development. The Asian experience suggests, once again, that efficient markets and effective governments in tandem provided the way forward to development. Now, the developmental states in South Korea, Taiwan, and Singapore, for whom Japan was the role model, which could coordinate policies across sectors over time in pursuit of national development objectives, using carrots and sticks to implement their agenda, led the economic transformation of these countries, which enabled them to become industrialized nations in just 50 years. However, the nature of these states uh, was an outcome of circumstances in history and conjuncture that were very specific to them. And I will come back to to this question in discussion if people want. Why were were they the exception? Uh, China emulated these developmental states in an altogether different political context with much success and Vietnam has followed two decades later on the same transition path but essentially because both countries have strong one-party communist governments with clear objectives that have the capacity to coordinate and implement policies. It is not possible, I argue, to replicate these states elsewhere in Asia. Even so, in the Asian 14, other countries where states were less effective, governments did manage to introduce economic policies and evolve institutional arrangements that were conducive to industrialization and development. Now, in countries that do not have developmental states, and that's most of Asia, it's only institutionalized checks and balances that that can make governments more development-oriented and people-friendly. This is obviously, I argue, more feasible in democratic than authoritarian regimes. Of course, democracies in Asia, as elsewhere, have their flaws and warts. These might seem larger than life, and democracies evolve slowly. Over time, however, I believe they are less fragile and more robust than authoritarian regimes. For Asia's continuing journey in development, democracy, I believe, is better than the alternatives uh, for all its flaws, not only for the rights and freedoms it provides for citizens, but also for the checks and balances and the self-correcting mechanisms it provides for political systems when things go wrong. And they do. Now, uh, unequal outcomes countries and people. Rapid economic growth in Asia was associated with an unequal distribution of its benefits among countries and between people. Compared with industrialized countries, for instance, the convergence of per capita incomes was rapid in South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, uh, significant in China and Malaysia, somewhat less in Thailand and Sri Lanka, and negligible elsewhere. The experience of the Asian 14 for those of you who study economics, does not validate the convergence hypothesis as there was no consistent relationship between initial level of per capita income and subsequent rates of growth. There was, in fact, a widening gap in per capita income levels within the Asian 14, while the gap between the richest and the poorest countries in Asia was awesome at more than 100 is to one in 1970 and in 2016. Uh, There was also a significant increase in inequality between people within countries, except South Korea and Taiwan, just as there was a marked increase in inequality between regions within countries, uh, both of which were more pronounced in countries that experienced rapid growth. The benefit accrued largely to people and to regions that were already well endowed. Even so, rapid growth did lead to a substantial reduction in absolute poverty unimaginable 50 years ago, Uh, however the scale of absolute poverty that still persists (coughs) despite this unprecedented growth is just as striking and awesome as the reduction in absolute poverty. The poverty reduction I argue would have been much greater uh, were it not for rising inequality. Now In the Asian 14, rising per capita incomes and improving social indicators, life expectancy and literacy rates, say, were related and the causation ran in both directions. However, the well-being of people is crucial because it is both constitutive of and instrumental in development. It is both ends and means. Uh, Thus, social progress for people and economic development for countries together which dispenses with the need to mediate between economic growth and social development so what is described as social policy, uh, can reinforce each other in a virtuous circle. Uh, conversely, unequal opportunities and unequal outcomes taken together can accentuate each other over time in a vicious circle, making matters worse both for the well-being of people and the development of, of nations, okay? Now, to save time, I'm going to skip this bit. For those interested, you can, you, can, you can look at um, the book. There's two points I will make. Uh, during the post-colonial era, the relationship between Asia and the world was shaped by geopolitics, in which economics and politics juxtaposed with history and geography were very closely intertwined. East and Southeast Asia became the main arena for contesting political ideologies, capitalism, versus communism, um, in the Cold War. While West Asia uh, was a state where strategic interests driven by oil played out. Now, both were associated with conflicts and wars over long periods that shaped subsequent trajectories of development. Uh, The irony is that the frontline states on either side of the ideological divide in the Cold War, Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, uh, and China, Vietnam, they turned out to be the sexist stories, possibly because uh, these countries have had the Albert Hirschman type of tensions and pressures that gave national leaderships a motivation. Um, there's just one more point I want to make on this. and You're bound to ask this in, 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 in Q&A. Uh, you know, the world has changed, changed significantly uh, as compared with the past 25 years when Asia did this phenomenal transformation, right? Um, Economies may have become global, but politics is national. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, there is, you know, economic problems confronting the world are significant. Uh, The smooth sail of globalization has been disrupted. And uh, there is a political backlash in the form of resurgent nationalisms across countries creating an international milieu very different from the preceding quarter century where the economic transformation of Asia had gathered momentum. We can come back to this in discussion if you want, but there is an irony in this situation that I would like to highlight. Uh, The political backlash in the West in the perceptions of people excluded from prosperity might be attributable, I think, at least partly to the rise of Asia. Similarly, the political backlash in Asia of these resurgent nationalisms, far-right populist parties, xenophobic, uh, might be partly attributable to rising inequalities within and between Asian countries. The uncertain future is therefore a challenge. Even so, uh, I will say something very briefly about the future. For those interested, I I do, in the concluding chapter, look at projections, their limitations, they give you some idea of orders of magnitude. Uh, But the economic determinants of potential growth in Asia suggest that several countries in Asia will be able to sustain high rates of growth for the next 25 years. Maybe the coronavirus is a black swan moment. We don't know, it's too early. Um, uh, For for obvious reasons. Their large population size is expected to increase further, which makes labor a source of growth. And their income levels are low, which means that the possibilities of growth are greater. Their demographic characteristics, in particular the the high proportion of young people in the population, which would mean an increase in their workforce and an increase in their savings rates for some time to come, are conducive to growth provided that these countries can harness the demographic dividend by creating capabilities amongst their people through education. Uh, Their wages are significantly lower than in the world outside, so that will be a source of competition. For many, not for all, uh, infrastructure, both physical and social, remains underdeveloped, so further improvements are likely to give an impetus to growth on the supply side. But please note, that these sources of economic growth will not be available to the success stories. South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, uh, and even China by 2025. Um, The possibilities are much greater for South Asia and for Southeast Asia. Uh, uh, These opportunities, however, are juxtaposed with formidable challenges. Apart from the middle income trap, with which you are familiar, and I can explain if you want later, The most important amongst these, perhaps, is the combination of persistent poverty, rising inequality, and jobless growth. Uh, Of course, absolute poverty in Asia, I believe, will be minimal by 2030. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nothing is absolutely certain, but that is very likely. Uh, But the problems of rising economic inequality and inadequate employment opportunities, unless addressed, will mount. Now, the problem is not simply economic, Uh, it is also social and political. Now, it is true that the past 30 years, uh, Asia has witnessed a phenomenal economic growth, uh, which has led to and has been associated with rapidly rising income inequalities, Although we know both from theory and history that income distributions change slowly, but Asia now is a counterexample. Hmm. Um, Ultimately, I argue that economic growth can be sustained in Asia uh, if it eradicates poverty, reduces inequality, and creates employment. Such inclusive growth is the only sustainable way (coughs) for Asian countries that are lagging behind uh, the, the leaders because it would enable them to mobilize their most abundant resource, people, for the purpose of development and reinforce the process of growth through cumulative causation. Now, orthodox economics often emphasizes that wages are costs on the supply side, but wages are also incomes on the demand side. So, employment is not so much the problem as it could be a solution. Now, the rise of Asia represents the beginning of a shift in the balance of economic power in the world, and a discernible erosion in the political hegemony of the West. History reveals that dominant powers are reluctant to see the economic or political space, uh, to rising powers that are latecomers, so that such processes of change are slow, and the duration and outcome is always unpredictable. If we go back, 100 years, a century, no? uh, you would recognize that Germany and Japan were both latecomers to industrialization and colonial empires. The inability and unwillingness of hegemons <laughs> then to accommodate them led to two world wars. Okay, uh, This is not my domain, but people are now writing this kind of story in international uh, relations. Uh, even so, the future is going to be shaped by how Asia exploits the opportunities and how it meets the challenges. Huh? And, and partly also by how the difficult economic and political conjuncture in the world unfolds. But we do need to remember that in 1970, the future looked even bleaker for Asia. It found a way around. Uh, so, I, I rem- Merida once described himself as a, a cheerful optimist, uh, I am a cautious uh, optimist in this respect. Uh, in the book, I argue in conclusion that circa 2050, a century after the end of colonial rule, Asia will account for more than one half of world income and will be home to more than one half the people on Earth, okay? Uh, it will thus have an economic and political significance in the world that would have been difficult to imagine. Fifty years ago even if it was the reality in 1820 that was in fact the case um, in terms of income per capita however Asia will be nowhere nowhere near as rich as the United States or Western Europe uh, Thus, Asian countries would emerge as world powers without the income levels of rich countries China will surely be large and influential and so might India but As a continent, Asia will not have the dominance that Britain had in the 19th century, Pax Britannica, or the United States had in the 20th century, Pax Americana, or indeed it does even now, uh, despite Donald Trump being in a withdrawal syndrome. Uh, Therefore, uh, I am somewhat skeptical of this idea of the Asian century, which is very much in fashion in Asia. Uh, I think it is some exaggeration and possibly hyperbole. The most likely scenario, circa 2050, is a multipolar world in which dominance might not be so striking. The United States and China will most probably be the leading countries with an economic and political significance in this world. But it is likely that this group will be much larger. It will include, apart from Japan, India, and Indonesia from Asia. It will include almost certainly Brazil and Mexico from Latin America, uh, and it will include Germany, France, and possibly Britain if it does not self-destruct in the top 10. Uh, The presence of what are now developing countries, and this is my conjecture, uh, in this group will depend in large part on whether they can transform themselves into inclusive societies where economic growth, human development, and social progress move in tandem. Even in such a multipolar world, uh, a shift in the balance of power towards Asia is almost inevitable, Mm. the economic balance of power. And the past of Asia then could be a pointer to its future. Let me stop, that's 40 minutes, 42. (laughs)
0: And we'll open the floor now for questions from the audience. Anybody would like to ask a question? Yes. Um, Thank you so much for the talk. A lot of interesting points, but well, I have one question. I think only one. <laughs> in Moving from agriculture to services, as you mentioned, but this low level services. So I think I'm just curious with um, how was image growth. You know how you're focusing on growth in terms of automation and high level
1: productivity, but not including the employment or labor along with it. Well, I, as I said in conclusion, uh, that is essential if Asia and Asian countries are going to sustain the economic growth they've witnessed in the last 25 years over the next 25 years. They have to create employment. Now, um, you know, it's not just that in developing countries, large firms uh, contribute a disproportionately large share to output but a disproportionately small share of employment. It's true in the United States, it's true in Europe. Uh, it is the SMEs that create employment and large firms that contribute to output with very high levels of output per worker Uh, and therefore um, well in modern capitalism uh, the large firms need to integrate the smaller firms into their production networks Uh, and if they are left alone they tend to get marginalized and they tend to die okay Um, now your second question on global value chains I would simply say that I think you know in many ways uh, Malaysia Thailand, and Indonesia. The mistake they made was that they inserted themselves passively into global value chains uh, at low levels of skills, at low levels of technology, uh, without any attempt uh, beyond a horizontal spread to a vertical diversification, which would see some backward and forward linkages. Now, this was partly the, the mistake that, that these countries made. Huh? Uh, but also the reality changed quite dramatically in Asia, which is not widely recognized yet. You know, until about 1995, Japan was the hub of the Asian economy, okay? And the nature of the relationship between Japan and the Southeast Asian economies in terms of any international division of labor was somewhat less unequal or somewhat more equal. Since the mid '90s China has become the hub of uh, the Asian economy, and that, has, that specialization has confined the smaller Southeast Asian countries in a very unequal division of labor and you know Adam Smith uh, in, in the Wealth of Nations has a passage about if, if a person is writing about the division of labor, if you keep doing the same thing over and over again then possible for a human being to become. So in a sense, mm. that is a big problem. I am not saying global value chains do not matter. Huh? They should be used, they should be exploited, but they are not a substitute for industrialization. Huh? So that, by the way, the automotive industry in India, I actually think, looking at it, is a success story. Huh? It is a success story. Uh, it, has, it accounts for 45% of manufacturing value added, and it accounts for something like 40% of employment in the manufacturing sector, organized manufacturing sector, if you include all ancillaries. And that's not a bad thing. In history, there is no country that has industrialized without building first a steel industry and then an automobile industry. And then you move on at high levels of productivity and and income. Uh, Let me stop. Okay. Okay, we'll open the floor
0: again. Yes.
1: Me for not remembering, but you will catch up. Have written books comparing China and India, so I won't be so ambitious. Pranab Bardhan has written about it at length. But uh, let me say that around the time of the revolution in China and independence in India, uh, India was marginally but not significantly ahead uh, in terms of human development indicators, in terms of industrialization, in terms of economic diversification. Uh, and even in 1970 India's share of world manufacturing value added at about two percent a little less than two percent was more than double that of China which was 0.8 percent in 1970 uh, and the transformation really begins uh, I think in effect around it begins with with, with, with Deng Xiaoping's reforms but it begins to impact by the late 80s so the China just Pulls away uh, from the rest of the world. And it's not just India, by the way. Uh, if you look at the share, Chinese share of world manufacturing at value added, uh rise between the year 2000 and 2016, it has come entirely in the of the United States, Western Europe, and Japan. Uh, so it's a phenomenal. Uh, <coughs> but uh, there are only two other points I'd like to make. Uh, first, that uh, it has to do with turning points. Uh, uh, that India, you see, everybody did the same thing in Asia between 1950 and 1975. Only South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore moved away a little earlier. Uh, in India, that transition uh t- Altering the balance between states and markets came somewhat later than elsewhere. Uh, two, when it came, India abandoned industrial policy in the belief that the magic of markets would, would uh, lead to salvation. It did not. In, in 1985, the share of manufacturing in GDP was 21% in India, and in employment was 18%. Today it's down to 14 and 14% are looking like Argentina. Uh, the Chinese actually used economic liberalization in conjunction with industrial policy. Uh, and they have thrived. Uh, but they have been miles ahead on, on human development, uh, public provision of education and healthcare. Although interestingly as inequalities rise, China is regressing both on education and healthcare in, in, in terms of outcomes. The only other difference Of its industrial policy, even if dealing with the coronavirus, uh, about its capacity to confine people in Wuhan and Dubai province to where they are. Uh, But it has much less capacity to manage conflict and contradiction. Uh, India. Um, so uh, there are huge differences. China has a per capita income of $10,000 per capita. Uh, we are still at $2,000 per capita. And really, in India, economic liberalization sets us back. Indonesia in 1990 had a per capita income about three fourths of that of India. Today. Insertion into the world economy was passive. We never used any industrial policy. Uh, The state kind of completely withdrew from the economy. The Chinese never did that. By, by the way, I, I discussed this, but I think you know there are many simple-minded conclusions around which says, you know, authoritarianism is good for development, look at China. Democracy is bad for development, look at India. Uh, but there's nothing logical about that. I can think of so many authoritarian regimes that are an economic disaster and so many democratic regimes that have done better than in so India has. Uh, but that, by the way, should you be interested, is discussed in some length Let me move to this side, and there are questions. Can we just get a sense of how many there are? Yeah,
0: because I think we might need to take several together. Yes, so, so there are
1: four here and, and three there. Three there. So <laughs> maybe we'll take the four here and then the three there? Or sure. we absolutely. haven't had, no, we've had a question from that side. OK, uh, it's a test of my memory. Huh? I'll try and <laughs> scribble. OK, tell me. Yeah. So we have three
0: Five over here. Okay. So yeah.
1: Let's take four up. and four. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So shall we do four and then we add the gentleman there to the three design? Let me just take these four, and we'll take him with but the other side. There first, and then the other three. Uh, okay. Um, it, I did expect this question about environmental degradation and climate change. To be honest, the book does not address the question, except in a short page and a half at the end. Uh, and I will tell you what I say there. Uh, there is no question that if Asian economic growth Is going to be sustained even at two thirds the pace of the past 25 years, Uh, then uh, carbon emissions are going to be huge, particularly from China and India, where per capita consumption levels are low and income elasticities of demand are very high. Mm -hmm. Now, there was a playwright called Bertolt Brecht who once wrote this famous line that those who have eaten their fill speak to the hungry of the wonderful times to come. So it's very hard to persuade poor people. China and India or other parts of Asia, nevertheless I recognize people are worried about environmental degradation. They are worried about, about climate change. Uh, now, we can't learn much from history because in the past two centuries, uh, industrialization, mm-hmm. growth, development has been driven by fossil fuels since the industrial revolution in England. You know. um, uh, but uh, there is evidence that both China and India, China more than India, are moving to non fossil and even India is making a significant move in that direction. Degradation of the Himalayas is also being looked at. Uh, we have miles to go, okay. uh, but there is no international agreement on carbon emissions. So I think these countries in Asia will have to act in their own interests without worrying about an international agreement and, and commitments. Uh, because so long as Mr. Trump is there, you're going It's a real issue, uh, but I would say that non renewable energy sources, uh, that energy conservation, energy saving technologies, cleaner technologies, they will come. Uh, But they're not going to come at a pace that will stop the global rise in temperatures. other other economists have done, they're all assuming that surplus labor is a source of growth. However, uh, it can be a source of growth if and only if there is public provision of education and of care. So then you make people an asset. And I think, by the way, of population, long, for long people believed that, you know, uh, China and India, the population grew rapidly uh, and therefore it kept them poor. But population grew rapidly because they were poor. I would say that the one major lesson from Asia is public provision of education and healthcare. That was China's success. And by the way, that will be China's Achilles heel because uh, as the other study we did on Asia, Francis, shows quite clearly that outcomes are becoming much more unequal in education and healthcare in, in, in most Asian countries. Um, your question is very important. Uh, The question is, uh, uh, the issue is that the the rules of the game for governing the world economy were created in 1945, essentially by the United States, uh, uh, with a subsidiary supposed role for Britain. Uh, Whether it was the Bretton Woods Twins, the IMF and the World Bank, or what came, what was the stillborn World Trade Organization which became the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. Asia had no voice in that process. Now, those rules of the game continue to be unequal, and the literature describes it as circumscribing policy space, because there are rules that restrict policy space for developing countries that are latecomers and want to catch up. Uh, at the same time, there are uh, 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 Let me try and put it uh, Clearly uh, there are um, say international financial markets uh, where there are no rules, but financial openness also constrains policy space. So if you get convertibility uh, <coughs> and you get one portfolio investment, you can no longer use interest rates or exchange rates. to keep your exchange rate strong and interest rate high for portfolio investors to come in. And you lose degrees of freedom in the use of counter-cyclical macroeconomic policies. <coughs> so w- w- whether the rules that exist or the changed world, they're both restricting policy space. Now, I have written about this elsewhere. There's a book called Governing Globalization, also OUP, you might look at that if you sometimes go. But let me simply say that Asia now has, acting collectively, it will have both voice and influence. Uh, given its share of world manufacturing, world GDP, world trade, world investment. Uh, but for that to happen, uh, China and India will have to set aside their rivalry and act together. Right? If they can do it, it is possible. But uh, that is sort of ex hypothesized. What worries me about China and India, I will be honest with you, that once they join the Premier League, and China already has, uh, they're going to forget their solidarity with other poor developing countries. They would like a seat at the high table. And that worries me even more. But if they were to act together in concert, they have the capacity to influence outcomes. Um, yeah, uh, I will be honest with you. I worry about China's economic uh, but you know this is a contentious proposition. I have an essay in a, in, in a, in a volume edited by Joseph stiglitz among others, uh, which compares China, and India, and Africa, but uh, you know, it is true that China provides financial assistance to countries in Africa um, without any strings of right? So they are not being grandmotherly in that sense. But the terms of that, at the agreement with the Democratic Republic of Congo, for example. There is a literature on that. Um, So that is one dimension. The other dimension is that, you know, so you you, you could say that Chinese presence in Africa, and some people will be with the state for saying it, uh, that Chinese presence in Africa is not very different Chinese have this, This it's much like the US. They are sourcing primary commodities from everywhere, conserving their own natural resources. So if you look at China's trade with Africa, 95% um, uh, exports from Africa are primary commodities, 99% nine, imports from China are manufactured. But that is true in China's trade with India, that's true in China's trade with Latin America. That's in mind. There's a very asymmetrical division of labor, and that could create possibilities of industrialization, for example, in Africa, because China also had lots of surplus labor and low wages. Now, this is something I think China is conscious of, because uh, in the beginning, it was a very romantic relationship, it's beginning to change. There is public resentment in many African countries, and China is looking at, at its whole foreign aid pr- so model. Huh? Uh, but uh, I do worry. Terms of engagement are equal. We, the division of labor, is much too traditional. Uh, and you know, if you look at the, there, there's there are uh, some scholars. I must be brief and stop so that others can ask questions. Who have done work on this? Rhys Jenkins, Rafi Kaplinski, There are many people who have worked on what China uh, present Yeah, lots of people have worked on it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you. We so can we?
0: We'll take th- our last four questions. That's so it. Yeah. That one person there, and then. There were, who are were your three over here? One, two, three?
1: You are an add-on.
0: <laughs> 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 All right, I so take we can four be four three brief three. <laughs> in your questions. We'll take the five of you, and that will be our final set of them. And then we'll go to a, a reception, and people can continue to talk with you if, if they want to. So please.
1: Good question, but tough to answer. I'll get I'll try. Yeah.
0: Okay, and in, in the overview, my question is about the special circumstances
1: you mentioned about the industrialized countries like Taiwan. Hmm. Um, and you said, stated that there were specific circumstances surrounding them, and one of them I'm guessing is the ideological relationship which progressed them into this competition to do better. This doesn't exist. yeah, yeah that got it
0: for, like, um, South Korea,
1: Taiwan, Singapore. yeah yeah it links with with your question too in part yes, I'm glad you asked it because I think it is important uh, my my close friend Robert Wade is not here. he would disagree with yeah. me on this I but I'm we you sure <laughs> <We laughs> so can tra- recap there. yeah uh Okay, yeah. Ja.
0: Question in the back there. No! <laughs> Make them very brief.
1: I'll uh, Give me the option of not answering one. <laughs> Time runs out. Go ahead. Okay, Kathy, I'm going to try. Yeah. Um, yeah. How much time do you give me for 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 all of this? Um, uh, what does the informal What will the informal sector look like in 2050? To be honest, I do not know the answer. Everything I observe as reality. I'm There is also a growing informal sector within the formal sector. So, that evidence now available in India and Thailand uh, and Indonesia suggests that an increasing proportion of people in the formal sector no longer have employment that (coughs) you would have defined as employment. So, something like 50 to 60 percent of workers in the formal sector are also informal. In that, they have Innovation benefits, no healthcare provisions, no security of employment. Huh? Uh, all of that is, is, and that's unfolding now. Uh, so you know, therefore, when people talk about the right to hire and fire, labour market flexibility, I get very confused because there's huge labour. It will take longer. What will the fourth industrial revolution do to this development? Uh, that's <coughs> also an important question. So the informal sector could be large. And I think the answer lies really, as I said, the problem of employment is not just economic, it's social and political. So the governments will have to turn attention uh, to this issue. Uh, oh, I, let me take your two questions together. Yeah? And and this is also slightly contentious. Many people won't agree with me. I think that the Republic of Korea, Taiwan, and Singapore were very special cases mm, in terms of the nature of their state. Why? Uh, Both Korea and Taiwan were Japanese colonies. At the end of the war in 1945, the Japanese, vanquished in the war, had to leave. Mm. Uh, therefore, there was no industrial elite. General MacArthur could carry out land reform in Korea. No agricultural elite, rather, because the Japanese owned the land. And uh, similarly in Taiwan, uh, with the added uh, factor that Chiang Kai-shek was not native to Formosa, he came from mainland China. So. There was, they were able to carry out a land reform because there was no agricultural elite. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the same time, there was no industrial elite. (coughs) But everything was owned by the Japanese in manufacturing. Now, uh, let me say something where Robert would have probably disagreed with me. Uh, uh, And I've said this to him so that he's not here doesn't matter. Uh, And I've written about it at some length in the book. You know, Japanese colonial legacy was very cruel and very repressive and it's very hard to erase from Asian memories. But Japanese colonial legacy also left Korea and Taiwan with an endowment that played a critical role in their development, okay? Which is that the Japanese set up manufacturing sectors, okay? Uh, In Manchukau, which is also a Japanese colony, more than one-half the manufacturing output of China in 1939 came from Manchukau, okay? Primary education literacy rates in in, Korea and Taiwan in 1939 were 35 to 40 percent. In in Vietnam, 2 percent. In India, 8 percent. In Indonesia, 1 percent. So last but not least, uh, the the Japanese also created a state apparatus that resembled the the Prussian-German state and the Japanese state. And remember, Park Chung Hee was a major general in in in, in the in the Japanese uh, Imperial Japanese Army, huh? so it was special, all right. Uh, and also, uh, the Cold War meant that they did get more resources uh, in the form of aid. Not that it is responsible for their development, uh, but they did. Now, uh, Singapore was just marshland when Lee Kuan Yew. Uh, As Singapore, an independent state. Uh, There were no landlords, there were no industrialists. There was only Lee Kuan Yew. Uh, So these states had an embedded autonomy, what Peter Evans calls an embedded autonomy. Now, once, you know, somebody, a a journalist asked Indira Gandhi, uh, why haven't you had land reform in India? And she famously said, well, it's easy to do land reform on someone else's land. So most of the countries struggled with land reform because there was a really. So these states were special. And you're right, the Cold War also gave them uh, A some support, but I don't think that was so much as important as the, the determination it gave them to consolidate around national development objectives. And it was just as true of Korea and Taiwan as it was of China and Vietnam. No? Um, uh, states and cultures. Yeah, you know, look, I'm not I'm not a historian, I dabble in history. Uh, but I read what historians write. Now, it is true that if you look at um, the economic history of Africa and Latin America, uh, you do find that colonialism wiped out cultures, indigenous peoples, in every way. So there was, in, in Latin America, State probably the most sophisticated, uh, but Indian state too. You know, you look at the Mughal Empire and the King Dynasty. Uh, in terms of demography, technology, property rights, they were comparable with Western Europe in 1750. So they did have a long history of states, which wasn't wiped out because European colonialism didn't occupy uh, Asia. It was <laughs> run with very few Europeans, unlike. Where you got a European population and the indigenous population was slowly—it uh, exists, but it's very poor even today in terms of, of opportunities. But this is a hypothesis, you know. I, I I think it's a plausible hypothesis because in all Asian countries, uh, the states that came in, and I think the political leaderships played a much more important role than I've given space here. Leaders made a difference. Individuals made a difference. Um, Different models of development. By the way, I have, I have discussed this in the book at some length. So if you, and, and, and for those of you who are students, I'd like to say the book is open access. You don't have to buy it, you can read it. And I will give the link to Kathy. To, to, to um, uh, you see, Asia had different models. There were countries that relied on domestic markets, domestic resources, domestic capabilities. There were countries that relied entirely on foreign markets, foreign technology, and foreign capabilities. Mm. Uh, Korea and Taiwan were unusual; they relied on do- on domestic resources, domestic capabilities, but external markets. Right? Um, Singapore, on the other hand, relied much more on foreign capital, on foreign technology, and foreign markets. Uh, China is, in that sense, closer to Singapore than it is, but they have a. They have developed brand names, but very different from Japan and Korea, which band they use the foreign brand names. Uh, China used foreign brand names wherever it helped. So Apple is part of the China story, but they also developed their own brand names, and they are developing their own automobiles now. Yeah. Uh, so the answer really is in a one-liner. The answer is that countries that relied much more on markets in Asia than on governments, did everything they could. If they succeeded, to minimize market failure. Uh, countries that relied more on governments uh, should have done everything they could to minimize government failure. Those that did succeeded, uh, and those that did not did So, it, it, in some ways, and you know, there is no virtue in saying that you rely only on foreign technology, foreign markets, foreign resources. All the other way around. Yeah. Every country has different. If you were Taiwan or Korea, small countries, no natural resources, you had to rely on external markets. Yeah. But they chose to rely on domestic resources and domestic technologies, much more. Yeah. They didn't use foreign firms. Uh, whereas China, uh, the principal mentor of Deng Xiaoping in 1978, one guest, Lee Kuan Yew, the first place Deng Xiaoping went to in 1978 was mm-hmm. Singapore. Yeah. And Guangzhou, uh, the Special Economic was set up at his advice. So too was the Shanghai one. Now there's documentary evidence on that. I haven't, you know, uh, there are people who have worked on it. Uh, so I- in that sense, you know, you can m- use external markets, domestic markets, external resources, domestic resources. But in general, the countries that rely on external resources alone, if they use them as a complement to domestic resources, they'll be fine. But if they relied, if they became sort of aid dependent, they became sad stories, most of them. South-South um, cooperation, China and India. You know, I am not, uh, you, there was once, once upon a time there was something called the North-South Dialogue, uh, which I described as, as, as a dialogue of the deaf. Uh, later there was a quest for South-South cooperation, which I described sometimes cynically, I don't actually mean it, but search of the blind. You know, South-south cooperation means that people are going to have to actually sacrifice some national interests. Uh, but whether it's aid or investment, it is not the business of charity. Uh, it's the business of profit. Uh, and the capacity to use that uh, is, is essentially the role of the national leadership. So I think it's no good to complain about Chinese presence or engagement in Africa if only African leaderships were to get their act together, uh, use China's uh, presence as a strategic bargaining lever with international (laughs) firms, uh, and use Chinese resources, capital technology, uh, to serve their national development objectives. And that role would have to come from uh, sort of local governments. Uh, But this does not mean, I think both, it's not just China and India, by the way. Republic of Korea is also one of the major donors now uh, in the developing world. So is Brazil. <coughs> there is, uh, there's, and there's a growing consciousness in China too. There's recognition that their aid programs are being viewed with suspicion. What can they do to change it? And they've just brought a new law. They have established uh, at Peking University an institute for South-South cooperation. I mean, there is an attempt to learn. The difference between China and India is that Chinese uh, presence in Africa is, is entirely state-driven. Uh, Indian presence in Africa is entirely private-sector-driven. Uh, so it's very different. The Chinese are sourcing primary commodities. The Indians are selling manufactures or services. You know, uh, so it's comparative advantage too. Uh, but I don't see the architect for uh, architecture for South-South cooperation yet, uh, because there has to be more cooperation among the. Among countries in Asia. Uh, and that's a very unequal relationship. As I said, the Japanese have been replaced by the Chinese as a hub for the Asian economy. Uh, but the terms of engagement are not, they are unequal. Okay, let me stop. I'm sorry.